Welcome to the History of the Saints podcast. My name is Glenn Rawson, series host. What you are about to listen to is an episode about the documentary history of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. This episode is one of more than 250 presentations from 1805 and the birth of Joseph Smith the Prophet through 1877 and the death of Brigham Young. This series interviews some of the finest scholars of our time and presents the latest in historical research and facts as it relates to early Latter-day Saint history. And it comes from the long-running, highly acclaimed television documentary series, History of the Saints. If you have a desire to learn the history in depth and detail, then this podcast is for you. Thank you for joining us. If Joseph Smith had uh, tried to establish and, and reorganize the church in the 1500s uh, or the 1600s, um, it, it never would have happened. 1700s, it never would have happened. I think um, doing, doing it in 1830 was honestly as early as he could have. The ancient apostle Peter foretold that in the last days there would come a restitution of all things. Well, getting ready for that restoration would take time and considerable preparation. Indeed, it was Elder Mark E. Peterson of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles who said this, The restoration of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ in these latter days, together with the advanced preparation of conditions which made it possible, was indeed a divine drama which had many stages and many scenes, some of which were world-shaking. So what were some of those moments of providential history where the Almighty was preparing the way for the restoration. That is this episode of History of the Saints. A farmer knows that there's a right time to plant. You plant too soon, the seeds don't sprout. You plant too late, uh, the crop won't ripen. And so it was that as God is bringing about the restoration of the gospel, he's going to bring it forth at a time when Joseph's words and what he does won't just fall on empty, barren ground. The field had to be prepared, and it was indeed in amazing ways. Sometimes people wonder, why did it take so long between the time when priesthood authority was lost, when certain changes and traditions were introduced into Christianity, and the restoration in the early 19th century? But as long as it was, that's only 40 generations. And if there are hundreds of things that need to be in place, and the timing all has to come together perfectly, then maybe it couldn't have happened any sooner than it did. When you look at the situation in Europe in uh, the 16th century, with the Anabaptists and the persecution they suffered. It's clear that Europe in the 16th century wasn't ripe for Joseph Smith and the Restoration. In the 18th century, Great Britain may have been ready for the Restoration, except for the fact that you don't have a frontier. 
If Joseph Smith had been born, say, 30 or 40 years later, when he was that age, the Civil War would have been going on in America. And what could have been done in the way of restoration then? If he'd been born 30 years earlier, that would have been 1775, the American Revolution just getting started. Trying to introduce a new religion at that point, when there wasn't even a Bill of Rights yet, also would have been poorly timed. The more I've looked at Joseph Smith's life, the history of America, the history of Europe, the history of the world, the more fascinating it becomes how things that needed to be in place were all ready when the time was right. Among those conditions most essential for the gospel to be restored was a land that could be the cradle of the restoration. One of the uh, ways that we see God's hand in history as we look at uh, scripture is the discovery of America and the role of Christopher Columbus in that discovery. And Columbus is an interesting case because he perceived God's hand in his own life and in his own writings, he reflected heavily on his role as an instrument in God's hands. Um, his deep understanding of Scripture and his careful study of Scripture in those uh, writings between his third and fourth voyages. Um, so it's probably a little bit of pride uh, mixed in. We, I, I think most of us like to see ourselves as people who are part of a larger project and who like to be able to, to feel that God is working through us and that we're accomplishing something beyond our own abilities. And Columbus definitely felt that. And um, providentially, we're told based on scripture that, that he was guided by God and that there are some uh, good things that came about as a result of his expedition. But it shows also that God works with individuals who have uh, limited light and knowledge and we're sometimes left to our own devices. It was President Gordon B. Hinckley in October 1992 General Conference who said of Christopher Columbus, quote, I have no doubt that he was a man of faith as well as a man of indomitable determination. It was he who in faith lighted a lamp to look for a new way to China and who in the process discovered America with frequent prayers to the Almighty for guidance. In his reports to the sovereigns of Spain, Columbus repeatedly asserted that his voyage was for the glory of God and the spread of the Christian faith. No matter what you think of the results of Christopher Columbus's several uh, voyages, this too was something that needed to happen in preparation for the restoration of the gospel. That those other sheep whom Christopher Columbus actually referred to. And his name, Christopher, Christopheron, is the bearer of Christ. He saw himself as bearing the message of Christianity to this new 
uh, world and to the Western Hemisphere. This land was kept secret until Columbus was moved upon by the Spirit of God to go forth and penetrate the Western Ocean. Then the land was settled and a government was formed under the protecting aegis of liberty, and a place was found for the establishment of the Kingdom of God. President George Q. Cannon. And then there were the Protestant Reformers. Almost a hundred years ago, B.H. Roberts, a magisterial historian of church history, made a remarkable comment. Speaking of the Restoration, and with all due deference to the Prophet Joseph Smith's role in the Restoration, Elder Roberts said that there were earlier lights in the morning than the rising sun. There was much in the twilight zone of the coming morning that spoke of other great men and women worldwide that expand the stage, if you will, of the Restoration and make it so much more expansive than perhaps we've ever anticipated or dreamed possible. We talk a lot about um, major players in the Reformation, John Calvin, Martin Luther, um, and these individuals apparently were inspired um, to question uh, some of the Catholic Church's interpretation of Scripture and uh, to focus more upon faith and divine grace as, as, a, um, as a focus for salvation, less upon the rights of the church. This was the spirit that moved throughout Europe, that generated freedom, that broke away from old traditions, that led people to come to the United States. It happened in some odd ways. Uh, there was a king, Henry VIII, who wanted to be able to divorce a wife. And in the process, it opened the door in the 16th century for what would then come in the 17th century with the Cromwellian Revolution and the emphasis on freedom and everyone being able to worship according to the dictates of their own conscience. Many of those individuals uh, gave their lives um, they were, they were martyrs uh, for, uh, for the cause of truth as they understood it. And you can't help but uh, appreciate the level of commitment that those individuals had and to feel that they were inspired by Scripture and inspired as they read it to recognize truth there and to see a disjuncture between the forms of religious worship around them and um, the forms of worship that were set forth in the New Testament. Many of these reformers are held in great esteem. They were working with the, the scriptures as best they could. And they opened questions that the restoration would help us then to eventually see how those principles teach correct principles to a point, but are just a part of a bigger picture. In speaking of those reformers, President Joseph Fielding Smith said, In preparation for this restoration, the Lord raised up noble men, such as Luther, Calvin, Knox, and others, whom we called reformers and gave them power, 
to break the shackles which bound the people and denied them the sacred right to worship God according to the dictates of conscience. Latter-day Saints pay all honor to these great and fearless reformers who shattered the fetters which bound the religious world. The Lord was their protector in this mission. A few years back, History of the Saints began production of seven seasons of a documentary television series titled History of the Saints. Season one, Foundations of the Restoration. Season two, Joseph Smith's Kirtland. Season three, From Pentecost to Persecution, the Missouri Years. And season four, Joseph Smith's Nauvoo. Then three more seasons telling the story of Brigham Young and the Saints, beginning with the Nauvoo Exodus in 1846, titled Gathering to the West. Then Building Zion. And finally, The Kingdom Endures. Altogether, over 100 hours of Latter-day Saint pioneer history. For these and all of History of the Saints books and DVD products, visit us at historyofthesaints.org. The steam engine and the industrial revolution, Samuel Morse and the communications revolution, and the numerous discoveries in science and medicine and more changed the world and prepared it for the dissemination of the restored gospel. The industrial revolution that really begins in the late 1700s and continues on until about 1830, 1840 is going to have a wrenching impact upon where people live and how they live. Now, the Industrial Revolution changed America and all of Europe from a basically agrarian society where people were, t- were tied to the land to a mobile society where people could get up and gather and move to different places. They came from England. They came from New England. They came from all over as they gathered to first Kirtland, Missouri, and then Nauvoo. That couldn't have happened even 50 or 100 years ago in that same dynamic way. It's going to be advances in the health code of the people. People are going to live longer. People are going to eat better. There's going to be more consumption of vegetables and better foods that have been consumed in the past. And Despite all the problems of the Industrial Revolution, it will change the world and eventually make the world a better place to live, an easier place to live. Now, we don't always think of the Restoration in these kinds of terms. But when you stop and think about it, what was needed to make the restoration of the gospel possible? Well, it seems that lots of things needed to be, and maybe not so accidentally, in place. And of course, with all of the other changes coming in preparation for the restoration, there had to come changes in civil law and government. There had to be freedom of conscience and worship. You needed no state-sponsored or mandatory church. And before the American and French Revolution, every king saw himself as a nursing father of the church and therefore under divine right and mandate to see that his church was properly throughout his kingdom. You needed to have a government where there was not a monarch who ruled by fiat and who could 
pass laws and could imprison anyone who started a new religious movement. It's really not until uh, you get John Locke um, writes a very uh, influential piece called, uh, he, he titles it A Letter on Toleration. Locke is, is the one who finally seems to get some traction uh, with other thinkers during the Enlightenment, pushing for religious toleration, toleration in religious things, letting people believe what they felt was right. And his ideas get picked up, you know, by other Enlightenment thinkers. Uh, Voltaire picks them up here in America, Franklin, Jefferson, uh, and others. And, and with that, uh, you, you have hatching at the same time the idea that church and state really do need to be separate. It was Elder Quentin L. Cook of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles who said in December 2011, quote, Sir Edward Cook produced the consolidation of the English law in written form. His work was to law what Shakespeare's was to literature and what the King James Bible was to religion. Most people consider the provisions of the common law produced by Cook as a foundation for the constitutional provisions contained in the United States Constitution which has been viewed by Latter-day Saints as both inspired and as necessary to the restoration of the gospel. A key feature in uh, the preparation for the restoration was uh, the establishment of liberty, and particularly religious liberty in the Americas. And uh, we see the extension of religious liberties from the 17th century onward in the Americas. Um, in, this, in about uh, 1680, England decides that it's going to grant uh, religious liberty and toleration in the, in the colonies. And so uh, that, that opens up the way for um, a variety of religious minorities uh, to practice their religions freely in the colonies. By the time of the American Revolution, you have many Americans who were opposed to the idea of a state church, an established church. It's difficult to find a, uh, a leader of the Restoration in the 19th century uh, who, whether born in the United States or not, uh, who didn't have a very profound sense that it was the revolution, it was the founding of the United States that made possible the restoration. And we often talk about that, uh, that the United States was founded by the hand of God and the Constitution inspired so that there could be the restoration. And I, I, I don't think anybody doubts that. But I don't think they understand how, in the 19th century, how real this was to people. But here was the genius of America, the spirit of religion and the spirit of freedom together. Uh, you might say a confidence in enlightenment, in progress, in human initiative, and a deference to God, to certain moral limits, to a truth above humanity. The genius of America was in putting those two things together. What developed in America, um, we, we have the First Amendment, um, and that takes the federal government out of of the idea of establishing and supporting religions. Um, over time, states uh, stopped doing it as well. The degree of toleration the church 
found would not have been possible in any other situation. So yes, uh, Joseph Smith paid for the restoration with his life, but he made it to 1844, and the church uh, already had thousands of members and missionaries and institutional structures, and that couldn't have happened except in America. It couldn't have happened anywhere else because on the one hand, the American belief in uh, reason and progress and individualism created at least a partial zone of tolerance where people would say, well, you may think it's kooky, but we believe in freedom. Let's let it play out. If there's any truth in it, let the truth prevail. There was something at the very essence in the founding of the United States, her constitution and free institutions that would most serve the restored gospel. If there is a, a, a clear ground in the doctrine of the restored gospel, which connects with the purposes of the Constitution, this teaching of moral agency seems to be the best indication we have as to just what that is. I would say that uh, it would, it's a mistake to identify hastily or too simply the Latter-day Saint concept of moral agency with various uh, philosophical or especially political ideological notions of freedom. They may overlap. There may be some alliance or friendship between them. Uh, but notably, whatever moral agency means, it cannot mean doing your own thing just because it's your own thing. Whatever moral agency means, it cannot mean um, inventing the meaning of life all by yourself. They didn't all understand this in exactly the same way. But, but even you know, on the, on the most liberal or libertarian side, Thomas Jefferson understood that the rights protected in the Constitution would only be safe on the basis of a conviction of the people that these liberties were gifts of God, that they were based upon a higher power. They were not mere human inventions that could be overturned by human beings. I'm Glenn Rawson, and we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening. If you would like more information on what you have listened to, please go to historyofthesaints.org. The History of the Saints team that produced this podcast has also produced numerous books and full-length documentaries on early Latter-day Saint church history and the key figures that made that history. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next time. This podcast of History of the Saints has been produced by Dennis Lyman and Glenn Rawson. History of the Saints is a 501c3 nonprofit organization.